Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor at Prospect magazine, and today we're talking to the political theorist and former Ed Miliband speechwriter, Mark Steers, about how to unite a divided world in the age of polarisation. But not, or at least not principally, about our own age, but rather the equally polarised one of interwar Britain, when ultra-conservative nostalgia, nationalism and Bolshevism all vied for attention. Until, in the title of Mark's brand new book, Salvation Came from Out of the Ordinary. That is, the routine experience and insight of everyday people. He homes in on the grounded wisdom of Dylan Thomas, J.B. Priestley and George Orwell, as well as the art critic Barbara Jones and how they provided a guide through the 1920s and 50s, decades of war and revolution, and how the people's own humble wisdom ultimately healed a fractured nation. And he asks tantalisingly, in an era of finger-jabbing Twitter certainties, whether something similar could happen again. Now, Mark, thank you very much for joining us. And first of all, let's look at those years and what parallels you really do see or don't between then and now. Thank you so much. Yes, I mean, the the, the parallels, I think, obviously, you know, we, we see them all the time at the moment. You know, everyone's talking about, you know, is Donald Trump a fascist or not? And, uh, you know, was Jeremy Corbyn a communist? And so, you know, people have obviously been drawn back to the interwar years, the 30s and then the war itself, you know, over the last few years to look for parallels. The parallel that I find is perhaps a surprising one or one that has gone uh, relatively unnoticed which was that the, the 30s was largely an age of certainty. You know, what you had are you know, re, re, people on all sides of the political spectrum, you know, left, right and centre, who were just certain that they'd found the answer. So, you know, you had uh, fans of Soviet communism or you had fans of, you know, sort of fascism or national socialism, but you also had sort of Fabians in their belief that uh, social science was going to provide the answer or that the new public services and bureaucracies would provide the answer. Um, and that's what first drew, drew me back to the period was that I, I kind of think that we're living in that sort of age too when people have just got too much certainty. 
Uh, and so what I want to do in the book is look back at those people who who were questioning um, that absolutism back then and the, the folks who were saying, well, hold on a minute, <laughs> we probably don't know as much as we think we do. Um, and if we do act with certainty, we often act dangerously in politics. And uh, not only do we make mistakes, um, but we do things that we deeply come to regret at a later point. I mean, I opened the book, first of all, thinking, well, you know, this, is, this might be a bit overdone, you know, because there's this kind of a uniformed madness at that time and PTSD. It's also a much younger and so more explosive society. The economy was worse because, as you mentioned, you know, you've got the, the, not just the slump that people remember in the 30s, but an even worse one straight after the first war and the, and, and the 1926 general strike. But the thing I picked up on reading your book that I hadn't thought about enough is just how much nostalgia there was around these years, which is very much a part of the Brexit moment in Britain now, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, essentially everyone knew that things were pretty terrible. I mean, terrible uh, because of the memories of the First World War and the destruction. Uh, then the sort of economic slump coming out of that, you know, uh, out of that First War. And then the Great Depression. And, you know, so, so people were desperate for answers for how you could, you could get things to be better again. Uh, and on the right of politics in particular, that did often take a deeply you know, sentimental and nostalgic look. You know, what you wanted to do was restore the old order. Order, you know, find something locked in the past that you could just bring back, you kind of lock, stock and barrel, uh, and that that would solve all the problems. And so you had the kind of, you know, those people who were vying for a kind of mystical future, often on the left, you know, the, the communists who believed that revolution would sort all our problems out. And those people who, as you rightly say, were sort of nostalgic sentimentalists who thought, well, if we could just restore some sort of medieval past, then everything would be sorted out that way uh, instead. Um, you know, and on the surface of it, those two things look very different. But actually, as they cash themselves out in politics, uh, people start to behave in quite similar kinds of ways. And I mean, you certainly can see some of that maybe around, say, in the Brexit debate, where like you look at um, the kind of Brexit fringe and its lack of interest in logic. But you see an equally zealous tribalism on the Remain side sometimes, don't you? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, uh, those, in a way, fantastic, you know, people's vote marches at the end of the Brexit, you know, sort of pro protest. On the one hand, I was incredibly excited to see all those people out on the street trying to uh, stop which something which I still consider to be a, a terrible mistake for the country. On the other hand, when you saw the Vox Pop interviews with people on the six o'clock news, and you realise just how certain, just how absolute they were, um, that kind of right was on their side, and that they needn't engage with the sort of argument or perspective of those people who had taken a very different view in the referendum, then, then, you know, then you suddenly sit back and say, well, hold on a minute, although I agree with you on the substance, I'm not sure I do agree with you on the style because I'm not sure anything is as de you know, definitive as, as, as that, especially on complex issues of society, politics and identity. And then also you talk in our own time about, um, uh, you know, this sort of which side are you on logic. It's obviously there, I don't know if we think of the Battle of Cable Street or whatever, but um, you talk about it in the lunchroom when people are munching on their Tesco sandwiches at the New Economics Foundation. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, you know, in, in the sort of left culture, we know it, I and mean, you, you, you hear it too much. I mean, critics of the left will obviously attack anything which they think is vaguely progressive as a sort of, you know, uh, cancel culture or sort of wokeism gone mad, you know. So, so you've got to be careful about making these criticisms. On the other hand, there is definitely something there which enables those criticisms to be made, which is that your people 
um, who have progressive views are often just too certain. Uh, and they're therefore willing to impose those perspectives on other people who perhaps haven't thought about the issue enough or the issue doesn't actually matter to them, in, you know, it doesn't impact upon their lives, they've got other more pressing concerns and you know, they're actually grappling with the realities of social injustice so they haven't sat back and thought about intersectionality as much as perhaps they should have done. You know, and you definitely see that on the activist left and you know, I, I had that experience, as you say, when I was um, working at NEF, some amazing people, uh, you know, really struggling really hard for some good causes, but not making friends where they could make friends because people's cultural ways of life, practices, the way they talked, uh, the way they thought about their families, etc., just didn't fit, and therefore they got excluded from the party. And that was, I think, a, a, a terrible mistake, both sort of ethically and politically. And and, and you were talking um, in that section. I mean, it's not a big section of the book, I should stress, but like you know about how you'd get some young Turk who gets very upset because someone's um, drinking some water from a plastic bottle or eating a sandwich that's from Tesco rather than from some artisanal place and, and, and then makes a enemy unnecessary. And the implication of that is that you need a sort of generosity of spirit in understanding how other people think, see things and, and, and do things. But I just wondered, I mean... The implication of that is that these people you talk about, you know, George Orwell and Dylan Thomas, have got a generosity of spirit. And when you remember passages of Orwell being so rude about the people at the socialist meeting or you quote Dylan Thomas somewhere calling people locusts, how sure are you that they really had a generosity of spirit? <laughs> That's a great question. I mean, the, 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 what they had, I think, was a spirit of humility. Um, and so they often didn't, you know, you're absolutely right to say, you know, having dinner with Dylan Thomas could be an absolute nightmare. He'd get very, very drunk and either hit you or insult you or write you a rude letter the next day. I mean, he, he's a genius and he's my hero, Dylan, but he's not, wasn't an easy man. Um, but what he was committed to is this sense that although we have a feeling about what's right and wrong in the world and that we should be active on those feelings, so they really matter, justice really matters, that nonetheless we should always engage in politics from a spirit of humility. Uh, and we should catch ourselves if we feel as if we're being too contemptuous uh, of anybody uh, who we're engaging with. And that, I think, is the common dynamic between all the people I talk about in the book, is that they, although they were impetuous and they could be aggressive and they could be difficult, they nonetheless had this fundamental belief that actually nothing really was simple in politics. And those people who think they've got all the answers are often, the, again, often wrong uh, and often dangerous. And so you've got to sort of act always according to this ethic of humility, of knowing that you don't really know, that you've got to build as big a tent as possible, that you've got to listen, uh, that you've got to act small to start with, experiment and be creative, all, all the stuff which, um, again, is very ill-suited uh, to the sort of intemperate, polarised political moments, either of the 20th century or of our own time. So it's really about, often, as I read you, trying to see things, being at least curious about seeing things from other people's point of view. And I wondered in that connection whether you could just say a word about someone I didn't know about before, Barbara Jones and the exhibition she put on at Whitechapel in the, I think, the early 30s. Yes, my, my sort of discovery of all of these thinkers really actually came through Barbara Jones. I mean, my, my dad was an artist, and so when I, I grew up, the house was full. This was back in the 1970s. The house was full of the sort of... Uh, of kind of bohemian Britishness, quirky and it was eccentric and uh, there were all sorts of weird machines that my dad would take us to see at local art galleries in Cardiff where I was brought up. And and it, I discovered going through his books actually um, that a lot of this came from, from Barbara Jones who wrote about what she called folk art 
in Britain in the 1930s, 40s and 50s. And, and her essential argument was that the most amazing creativity in the country uh, didn't come from those people who uh, exhibited in Piccadilly or the, or the folks who got celebrated in the Times, but were actually people who were creating art in their local communities, uh, often passing it down through generations. So often it was you know, parents teaching their kids and often related to things like trade unions or cooperatives or local church organisations. And what Barbara Jones did was she, she brought all of that art into the public domain yeah, and started to celebrate it. And, and we take some of that for granted now. And people obviously are familiar with the idea of public art or of community-based art now in a way that they weren't so much in the early part of the 20th century. But so much of that begins with Barbara Jones, this just desperate desire to show that genius and magic and creativity exist in the most mundane and parochial spaces, not in the most celebrated and grand ones. So just give us an example of a few of the items that would have been in her Whitechapel art gallery. Yeah, I mean, my, fa- my favourite stuff really is that there's, uh, there was an artist called Fred Meisen uh, who made sculptures out of corn. Uh, and uh, eventually for the Festival of Britain in 1951, which Barbara Jones helped pull together, uh, he, he was commissioned to make a, a sculpture of the lion and the unicorn, which represented Britain, this you know, symbol of Britain. Uh, and he did it, you know, out, making it out of corn for two reasons. One of which is, was it, it mocked the grandeur. So, so this wasn't a celebration of Britain in the sort of big, booming, pompous, you know, sort of Albert Hall sense. This was a celebration of Britain, which was just, just like poking it in the stomach a little bit, saying, like making us laugh at the, the pomp. But also, he always made them in this way so that they disintegrated. So this was this idea that, that these, these things wouldn't last forever. They'd have to be reinvented and recreated by the next generation or the next set of people that what you weren't looking for is absolutes and certainties, definite answers which were fixed for all time. In fact, what you were doing is, is creating the best thing that you could for this particular moment. And that's a key theme in Barbara Jones's work, which is that the, the story of the past and the story of the future are, are really connected together by each of us trying our own, to give it our own interpretation and then pass it on to someone else to give it their interpretation, which again comes back to that essential theme of, of humility, of not thinking that you've got all the answers of of wanting to give something and listen to others at the same time. Our American friends at the New Republic have recently introduced The Politics of Everything, a podcast exploring the intersection of culture, politics and media. The show's hosts are TNR literary editor Laura Marsh and staff writer Alex Parine. To get a taste of the politics of everything, listen to Libertarian versus Bear, an exploration of what happened when a group of libertarians moved to a small town in New Hampshire and set about slashing the municipal budget. Before long, they found themselves fighting off packs of black bears. You can find the politics of everything at newrepublic.com slash podcasts or wherever you get your favourite podcasts. Um, the, the example you give there of a kind of slightly comic line goes right through the book in, in a sense in that you open with this thing about St Paul's and patriotism and, and, and the left can never quite decide what it thinks about patriotism. So I guess it's reassuring to know that that's always been the case. But do, do you think you can see a kind of dance through somewhere between chauvinism and uh, being in the Theresa May Citizens of Nowhere? Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely a crucial theme, which is that 
I, I think all of the characters in the book struggled with it. You know, they, Orwell, as most people will know, you know, was hugely troubled by empire and hated the sort of little Englander appeal of sort of jingoism and militarism and, you know, the sort of public schools, the Boris Johnson style of his day. He just he absolutely despised it. But his response was to say, let's not give up on ideas of nation or ideas of history or ideas of place or ideas of belonging, but let's reinvent them so that they're controlled and owned and shaped by ordinary people, by everyday citizens instead. And, and that really runs through, I think, all of their work. They're just desperate to say, look, we don't need to cede this terrain to the, you know, to the absolutists or to the right or to the traditionalists in a boring sense. We need to own it for ourselves. And what's so refreshing about the way that they did it was it was genuinely participatory, that they wanted to hear stories about the country from, as Dylan Thomas always said, from the pubs and from the billiard halls uh, and not from the grand universities or, or from the aristocracy. So they, they didn't come along with an alternative pre-packaged, this is a you know, lefty version of history. Uh, they went out and sourced it, like Barbara Jones did, by, by collecting all that folk art. And the reason I stress that so much is that that, I think, stands opposed to what we often do at the moment on the left, which is... You know, sometimes we are just nasty about nationality or nationhood we just, or patriotism. We just think the world would be better without it. I have a, a great friend who always says that when people put their bunting out, she likes to go on holiday, she just wants to get away from it as much as possible if there's a royal wedding or what have you. So there's some people on the left who just reject it. There are other people who've got a sort of, as I say, a kind of pre-packaged alternative. Tony Benn always used to write about the levellers and the diggers and the sort of these great stories of the British radical past, Tom Paine. But none of that really makes any sense if you go into a uh, community centre or a school today and start talking about all that stuff, you just get blank looks. wrote those speeches for Ed Miliband, so I know um, how that kind of stuff goes down, but it doesn't mean anything either. But what Thomas and Orwell and Jones were trying to do is say, no, let, let's reinvent this story of nation ourselves. Let's get ordinary people to do it, and let's listen to the way in which they describe it. Uh, and and you know, when you read the poems or see the photos or read the short stories that they wrote, it's just profoundly moving and very beautiful. What do you think of the way, I mean, this is absolutely something that Keir Starmer is wrestling with right now. I'm afraid, I think, in quite a clunky way, the standard issue Union Jack behind him, which arguably isn't very British, and we've got people on the front bench kind of putting out videos saying, you know, the thing that's always made the most proud about Britain is being the armed services, and it's... it's Maybe they're from a military family, but unless they are, it's just not true, is it? If they're Labour people and they're in a government that shrunk the army, you know, for very good reasons, that there were more calls on public um, expenditure elsewhere. I mean, do you think Labour's getting it really wrong at the moment? I think it's just, it's got the right idea, but it's trying to do it too fast. And you understand why it's trying to do it too fast. Keir wants to bring the party back from, you know, electoral disaster into being able to compete effectively for office in a few short years. But really it shows, I think, the thing that I discovered when I was working for the Labour Party, that although it, it's desperate to be in touch with communities across the country and, and hear you know, people's stories and reflect their values, it finds that very difficult because it is still a professionalised electoral machine uh, and it doesn't have 
the deep roots and connections that it needs to have in order to be able to do the kinds of things that we would want it to do, i.e. to tell a more authentic story about what it is that people love about the country. You'll, you'll be aware of this, you know, just if you watch those John Harris videos on the Guardian website, when John goes out and actually talks to people about, you know, what excites them about Britain, what frustrates them about it, you know, they, he collects very easily some incredibly moving and very powerful stories. But the party still isn't able to do that. Uh, and it needs to be able to do it if it's going to sort of, as you say, avoid the clunkiness of just doing it by putting a Union Jack behind you. OK, so let's get a bit more practical, Mark, because you do have in this book a chapter on the socialists in power, uh, I guess, mid-century. Now, when I think about the early government, I sort of think about, I don't know, schemes that Herbert Morrison tried out in the London County Council and Fabian pamphlets about child benefit or whatever. So um, that's something where I need a bit of the help. What's the, what's the connection between these kind of anti-abstraction writers and what the Attlee government then went on and did? So I think the, the crucial fact about Attlee, it, it was that the, the, that whole period was actually, it, the, there was a rift in the party which went back to the 1930s, which is, do you bring big structural systemic change to the country from Westminster and Whitehall, directing it, nationalising industries, controlling things from the centre? Or do you do it by ceding power in a creative, participatory, devolved sort of spirit? Perhaps by you know, having more emphasis on workers' control in the newly nationalised industries, perhaps by creating a welfare state from the bottom up rather than from the centre. And, and throughout the 30s and 40s, Labour was grappling with that issue. John Crudus has actually done some brilliant work to show that Attlee himself was, was also torn. You know, he could see the benefits of both of those approaches. On the one hand, he wanted to get going and sort everything out in 1945, and he thought, well, the best way to do that is direct it all from London. On the other hand, he had this roots in what we call the ethical socialist tradition. It was all about community centres and co-ops and local union branches, and, and he loved that neighbourhood participatory spirit. What happens, I think, in the 45 government is the centralising tendency essentially wins that battle, and, and Labour drifts away from its more small-scale democratic participatory roots, uh, and it becomes captured by uh, a more straightforwardly bureaucratic, you know, sort of Westminster-oriented, traditionally Fabian approach. The last hurrah of the alternative, as I say in the book, was the Festival of Britain in 51, which was a kind of, if you like, a sop to the participatory crowd. It's like, OK, well, we've, we've created industry in, the, in a centralised way. We've built the welfare state in a centralised way. But you can still have a bit of creativity and a bit of art in this bottom-up sort of neighbourhood-centric way. And the festival was a celebration of all of the stuff that I talk about in the book. Now, Dylan Thomas uh, did the BBC reporting for the festival. Barbara Jones did the art. Laurie Lee, who I also speak about in the book, wrote a lot of the texts for the festival. And that was full uh, of this more you know, sort of everyday neighbourhood spirit. But by the time the Attlee government fell in 1951, uh, essentially Labour was now stuck in a groove of centralisation and bureaucratisation and the, you know, the, the kind of tradition that I describe uh, was very much on the back foot by that stage. So if you, let's just try and think about how Labour could put some of this wisdom into practice now. I mean, it seems to me that for Labour, there's lots of divides out there, as, as we know, but maybe in terms of trying to mobilise people, that the biggest divide is what, you know, The Economist magazine and others have called the kind of open-closed divide, where quite a lot of Labour voters were quite like a closed world of old certainties, and the, but it's easiest to drum up activism on the part of the open, anti-patriot, pro-immigration, younger, educated people. Now, there's lots of people who don't feel strongly on either side of that divide. How... Um, and I, 
how could Labour tap them? Are the they sort of people whose stories you think we do need to hear organising in any way? Are they giving things to or time to food banks? It's like I'm just trying to think. Are there? Yeah, I think I think two 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 stages to the answer essentially. I think the first thing is that my friend in the US, Danielle Allen, has this expression which I just think is brilliant. So stealing it from Danielle, she says that we we're living through the great coming apart. You know, so our, our you know nations traditional democratic nations are fracturing and they're fracturing intensely across multiple um, cleavages and one you've, you've, you've brilliantly described there this sort of open closed dynamic um, but we also see it in terms of you know uh, attitudes towards the economy attitudes towards climate you know you've, you've got these intense polarized um, political movements which find collaboration, coalition building, uh, you know, common ground politics, extremely difficult. And Danielle basically says, look, that, once, you, once you've got that in your sights, you know that's what's going on, you then realise you've got to do something about it. Like, the, the easy thing is just to, is, is to go with the flow of it and say, OK, well, you know, we live in a polarised world now, I've just got to choose my side and get on with it. So yeah, I'm an instinctively open person. I'm a very pro-immigration uh, thinker when it comes to public policy. I should just get on board with uh, the Remainers or the People's Voters or whatever the next version of that is and n- not engage with the alternative argument. I think what, what Danielle's observation makes us think is that actually it's not going to work, that, that democratic societies can't be prosperous or just and can't grapple with huge issues like climate change unless they're able to create more common ground. And that doesn't mean giving up on issues that you care about. It just means prioritising most of all efforts to build connected societies rather than disconnected societies. Um, so that's the first thing. The second one is like the way you do that has to be actually involving people. And that's where I obviously learn, and I talk about this at the end of the book, from my experience with Citizens UK, uh, for example, which you know, tackle huge issues of economic injustice, uh, like poverty pay, but don't do it uh, from a narrowly partisan perspective, but by building the biggest coalition they can of diverse people to work out solutions and then campaign for those solutions together. And you talk expressly, you mentioned the danger of this starting to sound a bit like David Cameron's now rather discredited because nothing much happened big society idea what's the guard against making sure it doesn't drift into nothingness yeah so I think again the guard comes really helpfully from all the characters in the book which is none of them uh, wanted to have anything to do with status quo conservatism they, they all knew injustice was intense and deep and economic inequality was getting so much worse in the 20s and 30s we know that now, but we also know uh, about racial inequalities and or, or about climate, about gender inequalities. We know the scale of the problems. And so what we have to do is not pretend that those problems don't exist because we want everyone to get along. You know, that's, the, that's the disastrous version of what I'm saying. It's just like, oh, well, we should prioritise collaboration and coalition building. Therefore, if people don't really care about inequality, that, that's OK. That's not OK. You know, you've got to be building solutions to these, these big problems, but doing it in a way which is collaborative. And that's what distinguishes it from big society, because Cameron, essentially, it's sort of meaningless fuzziness which doesn't start from a diagnosis of just how deep the problems are. Uh, it, it, it had no plan for being able to change fundamentally the nature of the economy. But we have to do that now. I mean, like, you know, there won't be a planet to live on if we don't. Um, and there certainly won't be social peace unless we grapple with economic inequality. So I always kind of think that Dylan Thomas, George Orwell, they all started with this sense that you've got to have big change 
But the way you get to big change is by building big coalitions, uh, not by you know, engaging in sort of polarised, narrow politics. So then the, the, the final question, I think, really is that's the method and who are the men and women that we could be looking towards. So I was trying to think, looking at your list, you know, the Laurie Lee and the Barbara Jones, George Orwell and, and, and the rest of it. Um, who's in that tradition in our time? Maybe Alan Bennett? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, Steve McQueen in, in the arts world, I think, has done this amazing series of photographs of young people's lives in London. I don't know if you saw those on billboards around London of, uh, of classrooms of kids uh, and put up without comment, without reflection, just, just class photographs, school kids in London schools. And as you drove past them, you just thought it were incredibly arresting images because it was giving back to the, to, to the city an image of itself. And it is incredibly inspiring when you see ordinary people living their ordinary lives made the heroes of a story. And, and that's essentially what, you know, what I've, I'm trying to argue for, is that the, 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 both in terms of artistic life and in terms of political life, you know, the, the heroism is not going to come from traditional places and orthodox places. It's going to come from places which are dismissed as parochial or mundane. That's, that's essentially, I think, in, in, in culture. In, in politics, look, I just think there are so many exciting examples of this now. The one I always talk about, which has just so profoundly impressed me, is, is a charity called We Belong, which is based in London, which was set up by uh, sort of young people who were undocu- had undocumented uh, migrant status. And originally they campaigned for the right to go to university, just like anyone else. Essentially, their mums and dads brought them into the country uh, without all more papers, and they went through their schooling. Then they got to the stage when they wanted to go to university, and they discovered they weren't allowed to. They weren't entitled to government support because they didn't have standardised immigration status. Um, and what they did is they created their own organisation themselves. They developed their own legal expertise. They found lawyers to work with them. They found communications people to enable them to campaign. And they built from the ground up this extraordinary organisation, tackling an enormous injustice, but doing it themselves, drawing on their own experience and their own lives. And it, that's just, when you see that work, it's just extraordinary. And what I would love to see something like the Labour Party do, obviously, is to support organisations like that to give them sort of uh, the connections they need, uh, the resources they need, uh, and to build a sort of fairer, more just society um, from the experiences that people have in their everyday lives. So extraordinary inspiration from out of the ordinary in your phrase. We could go on, there's much more we could talk about, but I'm afraid we've got to wrap it up there. So thanks very much, Mark, for joining us. If you're listening, thanks for listening as well, but please do leave us a rating or a review. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you again next week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.